0: Our Bibles are open this morning to Deuteronomy chapter number 33 near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. If you're just joining us you're on the tail end of a lengthier series through much of this year on this very important book of the Bible called Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible and we're in chapter 33 out of 34 chapters. Next week we'll look at a Sliver of chapter thirty-four, and that'll be the conclusion of our series on the Gospel, according <clears throat> to Moses. As you're finding your way there, let me apologize again for my voice. This upper respiratory stuff just hanging on. Anybody with me? Say amen. It's just hanging on, and I've just got that little trickle. And aside from laryngitis, it's the death nail if you're a public speaker. So I got a water here. I probably drank water during preaching less than five times in 30 years. I can't stand it. Breaks up the flow, gets in my way. But my wife said, you got to take a bottle of water up there with you. So hopefully I'll just use it as a prop this morning. Can you say amen? For years, scholars, historians, novices alike have had their imagination stirred by the engineering marvels that... uh, I have come to be known as the seven wonders of the ancient world. They're called the seven wonders of the world because they were wonderful to behold. They were massive. <clears throat> they were impressive in size and scope. And when people first saw them, they literally took their breath away. You remember many of them probably. There was the lighthouse of Pharos there in the harbor of Alexander, uh, Alexandria, Egypt, Uh, knocked to the bottom of the harbor by an earthquake many centuries ago. There was the Colossus of Rhodes, just about the same size as the Statue of Liberty, over 100 feet tall, there on the Greek island of the same name. The same thing happened to it, once shining brightly, now destroyed. The Temple of Diana in Ephesus, where crowds would gather and greatly shout, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! There was the statue of Zeus, one of the largest statues in the world at that time. There at Olympia in Greece, made of ivory and gold and studded all around with precious jewels, too invaluable to even calculate. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon in modern-day Iraq, built by Nebuchadnezzar for his Persian wife who missed the Green Hills and Valleys of her ancient land. Then there was the tomb of Mausolus, the largest man-made tomb probably ever constructed. All around it were statues and friezes and beautiful sculptures. Uh, And so important was it, uh, in honor of this great ruler named Mausolus that every above ground tomb that has ever been built since has gone by that name, Mausoleum. Those are the six wonders of the ancient world, none of which are still standing today. You can't find any of them. You go to Ephesus and you can see a few pillars from the Temple of Diana where storks come to build their nest on top of them, but that's about it. The only one of the seven wonders of the world still standing today is the Great Pyramid of Giza, just outside of Cairo, Egypt, built by Khufu in uh, they are twenty uh, 2,500 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 500 feet tall. For over 4,000 years, the Great Pyramid was the tallest man-made structure in the world. Constructed of over 2 million granite blocks. They weighed about 3 tons each. That's 6 million tons in total weight. It was massive and still is in scope consuming a total area of over 92 million cubic feet. Engineers are still confused today and still argue about how in the world they floated each of those blocks weighing three tons each across the Nile River and how in the world they managed to get the thing constructed in the first place. What you see when you go to Cairo today is but a shell, of what the ancient period actually looked like for when they first constructed it, it was perfectly smooth on every side with a beautiful casing of solid, polished limestone so that in the direct sunlight, it was so bright, a human being could hardly lay their eyes on it for more than a second at a time. As we come to Deuteronomy 33 this morning, we're confronted with the final words of Moses to the people of Israel. Chapter 34 is about the death of Moses. It's historical in nature. Chapter 33 represents the very final blessing of Moses on this second generation of Israelites. And what's important to notice are what his final words are all about. They're not so much about the nation of Israel, nor are these final words so much about the land that they're about to inherit, nor are they about the law, nor are they about Moses himself. No, Moses' greatest desire is to leave Israel with the impression that the greatest wonder in the world now and forevermore is God himself. God is the great wonder of the ancient world, of the present world, And of the age to come. Look at what Moses says beginning in verse 26 of chapter 33. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word, those of you that are able. Here's what it says. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath, are the everlasting arms he thrust out the enemy before you and said <clears throat> destroy so israel lived in safety jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew happy are you o israel who is like you a people saved by the lord the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread up upon their backs. Father, <clears throat> thank you for this wonderful description of the power and the majesty and the might and the person of God, not only of who God is, but of what God can do and wants to do in and among His people. Speak to our hearts by your spirit today. Inspire us, inform us. But most of all, outfit and equip us that we might be the people of God engaging this world for the time is short and Jesus is coming. We pray all of this in his wonderful name and all God's people said. Amen and amen. Thank you, church family. You can be seated. Let me point out two things by way of introduction today from this passage of Scripture. First is that this final word to Israel comes as a culmination Kind of a high watermark of a series of blessings that Moses is giving to each of the tribes of Israel. I'll leave it to you to read the first part of the chapter, but he begins with a word to Reuben, and then he begins with a word to Judah, and then he begins with a word to Levi, and so on until he completes the list of the tribes of Israel and gives each of them uh, a personal blessing. And then he eventually arrives here, verse 26, to this second and much more general blessing for the people at large. That's the first thing you need to realize, that this is a final series of blessings to Moses before he leaves them and before he turns the reins over to Joshua to lead the people into the land of promise. The second thing I'd point out is that Moses addresses this more general blessing, the one that we've just read Uh, to an unusual name that we really don't see very often in Scripture, and that is the name Jeshurun, or in the Hebrew, Yeshurun. There is none like God, O Jeshurun. Now, the question is raised when you're reading the Scripture, who in the world is that? Who is Jeshurun? Well, Jeshurun is kind of a code name for the nation of Israel, kind of like the Secret Service has code names for presidents, amen? Ronald Reagan was rawhide. Somebody say amen this morning. John F. Kennedy was lancer. Richard Nixon was flashlight or searchlight. Uh, George W. Bush, trailblazer. You know what Jimmy Carter's Secret Service code name was? Deacon. Can I have an amen this morning? The one Southern Baptist that we've had in the White House was Deacon. Well, Israel was Jeshurun. A name used only four times in the Bible, three of them in Deuteronomy. In fact, these three uses in Deuteronomy all occur in chapter 32 and then chapter 33, and then it's used one more time in Isaiah chapter 44. I think Moses gives the people this name, and Moses is the one who uses it. He's the one who kind of gives it to them. And I think he does so because, in his mind, a a new generation needed a new name, it was fitting especially as they were about to inherit this new land. Uh, And so as they're about to move into this new place, which Moses knew, and he's warned them all through the book, this is a land that is abundant, but it's a land that's full of pagan idolatry. And so as they prepared to move into this place filled with pagan gods, it's as if Moses is reminding them who they really are. He's reminding them through the use of this name, which basically means upright one. Or holy one. That's what the word means. Holy or upright one. And so as he renames the people, it's almost as if he's reminded them, don't ever forget who you are. Don't ever forget not only who you are, but who God is and what God wants to do with you. You are the upright ones of God, called to be holy to the Lord. Something that he reflects here in the last thing that he says to them in verse 29 who is like you, O Israel, a people, what? Saved by the Lord. But here's the thing. People are always a reflection of whatever it is they worship. Do you hear me say amen? Everybody worship something. Everybody worships somebody. And you'll always be a direct reflection of whatever or whomever you choose to worship. Moses knew that. And that's why the image that Moses leaves with the people before he takes his last breath is this beautiful image of God. It's a description of the character of God and of the power of God that's designed to reflect the uniqueness of God among all other gods that this nation are going to experience in the new land in which they're about to enter. Verse 26 is the key that unlocks The door to the entire chapter. Who is like the Lord? Or as phrased by Moses, there is none like God, O Jeshurun. Who is this incomparable God of Jeshurun? Well, Moses describes him in four ways that we're going to look at this morning. The first thing that he says about this God is that he's a living God. Aren't you, God that we, uh, aren't you grateful we serve a God who is very much alive today? A God who is not dead, but a God who lives, rules, and reigns from a throne. This is the most important distinction between the God of Jeshurun and any and all of the gods of the Canaanites. All of their gods were dead. All of their gods are of man-made materials. But our God is alive. Our God was not fashioned or made by anybody. All of their gods age and eventually decompose, but the God of Jeshurun, our God, the one true God, is a true and living God who has always been, is today, and always will be. He is, as Moses says, the eternal God of heaven and earth. That's exactly what he says in verse 27. The eternal God. And then he describes him as possessing what kind of arms? Everlasting arms. You know, how did Moses know that? Well, Moses had an encounter with God 40 years before, didn't he? There at Sinai when he was tending his father-in-law's sheep. And he went up on that mountainside there at Sinai. And he was face to face with God in the form of a burning bush. And the fact that the bush was burning with fire But not being consumed, apparently it was made of asbestos. I don't know. But the fact that it was burning with fire, not being consumed, has much more to do with what the fire represented than what the bush was made of. Isn't that right? For that eternal flame was a symbol of the eternal God. The fact that the fire never went out was a reminder that not only was God holy, and fire is always a symbol of holiness in the Bible, but the fact that it was continuous, and was not extinguished reflects the eternal nature of God, who never had a beginning and will never have an ending. In fact, that was reflected in the very name that he gave Moses, wasn't it? Who shall I say sent me to you? And God spoke from the midst of the eternal bush and said to him, tell them I am is sending you to them. God doesn't identify himself as I was. God doesn't identify himself as I am someone who will become. God simply says to him, I am. And you see that reflected all through the scriptures. You read the Psalms, for example. Most of the Psalms were written by David or by an unnamed psalmist. But did you all know that there was one Psalm that was written by Moses? Did you know that? There's one Psalm that was written by Moses that predates all of the other Psalms. It was picked up and added to the Psalter, but it's Psalm number 90. And there at the beginning of Psalm 90, you'll see it, a Psalm of Moses. And what does Moses say about God in the 90th Psalm? The same thing he says here in Deuteronomy 33. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art what? God. I'm often asked by younger people, where did God come from? When did God begin? And you know, my answer is always the same. In no place, at no time. And their minds are still shot after you tell them that. God didn't begin at any time, and God didn't begin in any place. He's like the wedding ring that many of you are wearing this morning. You look down at your wedding ring or pull it off. Don't pull it off unless you can keep it in your hand because I don't want it falling into one of these grates and me getting blamed for it. But the reality is you look at it, no matter how hard you scrutinize it, you cannot tell where the ring begins and where the ring ends. The ring just is. It just is. And that is God. Who is the God of Yeshurun? Well, he is by his own testimony in the last book in the Bible. I am the Lord, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Lord, the Almighty. That's the God of Jeshurun, the eternal God of heaven and earth. But I want you to notice, secondly, that Moses also reminds us that he's not only a living, eternal God, Secondly, he's a mighty God, a majestic God. That's the word we want. Our God is a God of majesty. You know what the most overused word in the English language of the last five years is? Awesome. That's right. And I believe it because people use that word to describe everything. I mean, when we have a good meal, even if it's a cheeseburger, that was awesome. Or when we like a person's outfit, even when it's full of holes in the knees. We say, oh, that's awesome. You look awesome. Or when you open up that Christmas gift and it's an Old Spice gift set from the drugstore. You say, oh, this is awesome, man. No, it's not. It's thoughtful, but it is not awesome. Amen. I tell you what awesome is. If you give me an Alaskan cruise for Christmas, that would be awesome. It's the most overused word. But can I say something this morning? When it comes to the Lord, our God is an awesome God. I mean, he's an eternal God of power and of authority. And that's what's bound up in the word majesty. Verse 26, our God rides through the heavens, through the skies in his what? Say it out loud, his majesty. You know, when something is majestic, it just kind of takes your breath away. Maybe it's, it's sheer size, like the Grand Canyon, you just have that wow factor. When the scope of it overwhelms you or when it's just so beautiful or just incomprehensible. I remember the first time I ever saw a bald eagle Uh, was out taking a drive through the snow in northwest Arkansas, and there were a bunch of bald eagles, and then they took off. When we pulled off on the side of the road, I could see them in the barren tree, and there they went, literally flying over the road right in front of us. First time I'd ever seen a bald eagle uh, alive out in, in the country, and the wow factor kicks in. That was just such a majestic sight seeing that or when you stand on Liberty Pier for the first time on the New Jersey side and you look at the skyline of Manhattan and you realize what just what human beings are capable of doing it's just a majestic awesome thing to behold well God wants you to experience his majesty because he is a majestic God and experiencing the majesty of God begins always with an awareness of who God is the psalm writers had that speaking of the psalm writers they were aware of the majesty of God, and how do you know it? Well, you know, 14, 15 times through the Psalms, some form of the word majesty or majestic uh, is used, as in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how what? How majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, how did those guys know that? How did they know? I mean, they didn't have the codified scriptures like we know. We can read it in the Bible, and we can be told that God is a god of majesty. Well, How did they know that? I'm going to tell you. All with me say amen. They spent time in the presence of God. They were guided by the Spirit of God to the majestic courts of God. And because <clears throat> they lingered long in the presence of God, they could be led to write things like, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul longs, yes, Faints for the courts of the Lord, for better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. What would inspire a psalm writer in the absence of the scriptures to make a statement like that? I'll tell you what, that that was a man who spent time in the presence of the living God. And I'm telling you this morning, to know and experience the awesome majesty of God, you've got to linger long in the presence of God. Now we can do it partly through the word. We can do it through prayer, and we can do it through communion. We can do it just by meditating on the truthfulness of the scriptures. That was critical to the psalm writers understand. They give us these beautiful psalms of hymns and and praise to God tools that we can use in the worship of God. And that's where they came from. They experienced God, spent time in his presence, and that's where their confidence came from. Many times the psalm writers talk about how oppressed they are and how discouraged they are and how on the run they are from their enemies. Where did they get their confidence Well, they got it because they came to understand how majestic and powerful and awesome their God actually was. And many times you read about that in the Psalms and they use exactly the same imagery that Moses uses here, this imagery of God in his majesty riding across the skies, riding across the heavens. That picture reminds us That the majesty of God isn't something that simply describes his identity, who he is. It's also an important part of his divine activity. Not only his character, but his activity among his people. It describes who God is, majestic, and what God does, majestic in his deeds. For the God of Jeshurun is not only a majestic living God, that leads us to the third thing. He's also a saving God. He's a God who saves. He rides through the heavens, yes, but for what purpose? Why? Well, Moses answers the question in verse 26. He rides through the heavens to your help. Did you see that? Say amen. It's God riding to the rescue. The Lord, Moses says, is the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. The, infant, uh, the image there is that of the cavalry charging in. cavalry riding in when the community is, you know, circle the wagons and they're surrounded by enemies and everything seems lost, and then you hear the bugle blowing and in rides the cavalry. <clears throat> or when air cover finally arrives, right? When air cover and the infantry's pinned down, smoke everywhere, they can hardly see, but there's a guy over there on the radio and he's calling in the air support. And then you can hear the engines in the distance, and here they come, whether they be Apache helicopters or or fighter aircraft or whatever, they come flying in over the horizon, give some much-needed relief to the guys on the ground. See, that's the picture that you have here. This is the picture, by the way, that we have of Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh at the critical moment near the end of time as we know it. What do you see of Jesus in the book of Revelation? Well, near the end of time, he comes riding out of heaven on what? On a white stallion with eyes like flaming fire, wearing a robe dipped in blood, the Bible says, leading the armies of heaven itself with a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of lords and that brothers and sisters is why there's so much emphasis in Deuteronomy and not only in Deuteronomy but in the Bible in general on not being afraid what do you and I have to be afraid of with a God like that nothing we can have confidence even in times of tremendous uncertainty why because this is a picture of a God who is the security of his people the protector of his people Moses describes the Lord here as our dwelling place, our refuge in a time of storm. In other places in the Bible, he's referred to as our rock, our fortress, our defender, our deliverer, and one of the most important hymns that's ever been written in the history of the church. A mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther refers to him as a bulwark, never failing, our Helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. That's the picture of the God of Jeshurun painted by Moses as he's literally taking in his last breaths on earth. Moses says God supports his people with what he calls everlasting arms. How many of you as children remember the strong arms of your father? wanting to have the muscles of your father. Well, God has arms that are everlasting. We sing about it in that old hymn, leaning on the everlasting arms. That's the sword. That's where this comes from, right there, where that hymn comes from, right here out of Deuteronomy chapter 33. And you need not miss the imagery here because Moses is painting a picture, first of all, of a God who rides above us. He rides across the skies and heavens in majesty. But he also paints a picture of a God who is with us, going before us in our times of battle to drive out the enemies. And now he speaks of a God who is underneath us, supporting us with the strength of his strong arm, Man, don't miss that beautiful imagery. He's a God who rides above us in majesty. He's a God who lives with us, driving out our enemies in power. And he is God who's underneath us, supporting us with the strength of his everlasting arms. It's the picture of a firefighter carrying somebody that's weary or wounded from a burning building or a battlefield buddy who's got a, a wounded comrade around his neck helping him to the helicopter there in the field to get medical assistance. I remember the images of those runners near the end of the Boston Marathon in 2013. That was the Boston Marathon where the terrorist bomb blew up. Many of them were approaching the finish line, mostly exhausted, weary from the exertion of that 26-mile run, and the cameras were rolling there near the finish line. And with the finish line in sight, suddenly right there on the camera, there's an explosion. You can look at it on YouTube. There was an explosion as that bomb was detonated. And I remember watching the video of some of those exhausted runners. They were already exhausted. They were barely able to put one foot in front of the, nu- uh, of the other. And yet when that bomb exploded, the shock was so great. You can literally see the runners on the screen, their legs just buckle under the massive force, and they went straight to the ground. I'm here to tell you this morning, that kind of thing's going to happen to you in life. Maybe not literally. I hope not. But we live in a world where the terrain is pockmarked with landmines all around. World's a dangerous place. Trouble's going to come. Explosions, eruptions, they will occur. But the Bible says God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of what? In time of trouble. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes unto the hills, and from where does my help come from? And he answers his own question. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's a majestic God who is a living and eternal God who is most importantly a saving God who meets us right where we are in life. And I'm telling you, even though there may be times living in this fallen world where we may stumble, we don't ever have to fall. Because the God of Jeshurun supports his people with undying strength contained in what Moses calls his everlasting arms. And can I say this morning that so was it with Israel, so is it with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the God of Jeshurun is our God too. Amen. We are a people saved By the Lord. And whether it's the Lord saving us from our enemies in a new land or saving us from our sins, I'm just saying this morning, the God of Jeshurun has the power to save because our God is mighty to save. But there's one last thing that I'll remind you of this morning because it's something that Moses reminds us of. And that is that this God who is a living God, a majestic God, a saving God is also a giving God. <clears throat> He's a God who not only saves his people, but once they're saved, he graciously and generously provides for those very same people. Look at verse 28. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone. That doesn't mean that God placed him in solitary confinement. That means that Jacob lived in peace. He lived unbothered in his new land. Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of what? Say it out loud. In a land of grain and wine. I love this picture. Whose heavens drop down dew. Isn't that beautiful? See, a big part of Israel's security involved not God not only going before them to drive out their enemies, but it also involved God dwelling with them to provide for their every need. Remember, this was a good land that the people were entering. It was an abundant land flowing with what? Say it out loud, with milk and honey. That's right. That's a picture of abundance. And God had promised them. We've, we've read this for the whole year, all the way through, through the book of Deuteronomy. God says, here's the thing. This is what you can expect if you stay faithful to me. Here's the law. I'm giving it to you as a gift to know how to live in a way that honors me as the holy chosen people of God, how to live up to your privileges. Live this way. Honor me. Reject the false. And you'll never want for a thing. You'll never want for a thing. You'll always be the head, never the tail. Amen. you'll You'll live in prosperity. You'll have everything that you ever need. And even if you sin, not even if you sin, but even what? When you sin, if you just repent, refuse to stay there, come back to me, I'll forgive you every time. I'll freely forgive you. Not only will I freely forgive you, I will restore your fortunes to you that your sins have eaten up. So God was not only the source of their security, God was the source of their prosperity as well. He would conquer their enemies and he would renew their resources if they would but remain faithful to him. The heavens would drop down dew on a land of grain and wine flowing with milk and honey. I'm telling you, we're still privileged people today, aren't we? We live in a good land. We live in a good place. We don't deserve any of it. You didn't choose where you were born. God has blessed us. God still provides for his people today. Do you all believe that? You believe God still provides for his church? That God still gives? God still sustains his people who remain faithful to him? I hold in my hand right here a check for just a little over $9,000. I have security with me this morning. You know what this check represents? It represents the last payment on decades of indebtedness at Hillcrest Baptist Church. When I drop this in the mailbox tomorrow, we will be a debt-free church. Right here. And God did it. Now, you gave it, but you gave it out of obedience You gave it out of your abundance. You gave it when you could have been spending it on something else. And let there be no doubt what we believe about God here at Hillcrest. We believe it because we've lived it now for years and we've seen it and we've witnessed it firsthand that our God lives, that our God is eternal that our God saves, and that our God provides. Can I get a witness today that our God is an awesome God? Amen. Amen. (laughs) So we ask the question one final time. Who in the world is the God of Jeshurun? Well, he's the eternal God of heaven and earth. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of the church. But best of all, he's a God who has come near in the person of Jesus Christ. So that by faith, the God of Israel, who is the God of the church, who is the God of Hillcrest, can be your God and my God. It may be the most understated thing Moses says in the whole book of Deuteronomy, but I think it's the most important thing that he says, and you should never forget it. There is none like God. This is his eternal word, and all God's people said, amen Amen and amen.